Welcome back for the fourth season of Home Stories from L.A. I'm glad you're here. Home is, as always, a member of the Boing Boing Podcast Network, and to learn more about the other great shows in the lineup, visit boingboingpodcasts.com. And to find out more about this show, visit homestories.la. What happens to a utopia, a cooperative experiment in modern living for the masses, that never quite gets off the ground? Well, for one of them, its beautiful remains survive, hiding in plain sight in the hills above Sunset Boulevard. It, it is under the radar. Uh, we just had a house tour here for the Venice Family Clinic, and I would say probably a dozen people came up to me and said that they had never heard of this community. It always surprises me. This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. You got to accentuate to positive e limb. My name. It's 1945. You're a GI, just returned from the Pacific. Maybe you'd shipped out through one of the West Coast bases a year or two before. Treasure Island, Long Beach the port of L.A. Maybe you'd remembered the place, the sun and the water, that last glimpse of home as the big troop ship steamed west. Here's architect and architectural historian Corey Buckner. A lot of the servicemen during the war had been processed through California, and they got a taste of the California weather, the uh, lifestyle, and they were intrigued by it, and they returned to Los Angeles, set up home, uh, which caused a housing shortage, quite a drastic housing shortage. I've got to have a home. No one is to blame, yet everyone is to blame. There's been a lag in home construction for more than 15 years. During the past five years, the population of the United States has increased 8 million. Now there are building material shortages of all kinds and shortages of manpower in the building trades. Everywhere citizens were aware of the emergency. In the city halls of hundreds of cities, in state legislatures, and in Washington. And there were some temporary efforts to house these uh, veterans with the Roger Young Village, which was a Quonset hut. Village, I believe there are 500 units, uh, gradually 1,000 units, I believe, that were built in Griffith Park. And then uh, developers started to take advantage of this, and they built uh, tract housing uh, very cheaply, very quickly, which was what was needed. Um, but uh, architects uh, became aware of a lot of the building materials that had been approved, or improved, I should say, during the war effort, like uh, plywood, plate glass, and concrete block. Large stocks of aluminum, originally earmarked for war purposes, are put to peacetime use to relieve the housing shortage in Europe and America. In these Canadian plants, the metal is rolled and shaped. And um, they uh, wanted to take advantage of the climate in California and to create modern architecture with these uh, exposed materials. That's how it happened that Southern California became a sort of living laboratory for new ideas in home design in the 1940s. And it's the background for the story of a studio musician, 
Jules Salkin. Salkin had spent a couple of pre-war summers at Taliesin, Frank Lloyd Wright's workshop in Wisconsin, and he'd seen a plan there for a small, simple experiment in cooperative living. An acre of land with a home in each corner and shared community space in the center. The memory stuck with him, and back in L.A. after his hitch in the service, he shared the idea with three of his musician friends, Ray Siegel, Leonard Krupnik, and Gene Comer. They agreed to give it a try. They told some of their friends. They had 25 people interested, and those friends told other people, and they soon had 100 people interested. And then they ran an article in the Hollywood Citizen News, and then they had 500 people interested. So with that kind of interest, and with each person putting down $500 towards a $2,000 lot, they could really consider buying a large parcel of land. In August 1946, they set up in business as the Mutual Housing Association, a nonprofit organized along cooperative lines whose historical roots go back to the 18th century. MHA was democratic in spirit and progressive in thought. Now it had members, a manifesto, and money. Soon it had architects, A. Quincy Jones and Whitney R. Smith, a structural engineer, Edgardo Contini, and a landscape designer, Garrett Ekbo. The architectural team would eventually present 28 different designs from which shareholders could choose. MHA would, in short order, give its community a name, Crestwood Hills. Now all it needed was the land. So they started looking at golf courses around L.A. Uh, they looked uh, in the valley. They looked at uh, what's now Balboa Highlands, designed by Eichler. Um, they looked at several other large parcels in East Los Angeles. And finally, uh, Jules Sulkin had heard about uh, 800 acres for sale up here in Brentwood. And uh, Brentwood, where we are, is sort of bordered by a very high-end Bel Air and then Santa Monica to the west. Jules Sulkin knew, since it was a primarily a Jewish uh, group uh, that was interested in doing this cooperative housing, that they, it would be questionable whether they, uh, they would sell to that kind of population, being within the sort of right-wing, uh, upper-class Bel Air. So he had his, uh, his wife's uncle front the per purchase of the property. I wonder if it occurred to the founders that basically pulling a fast one on a grand scale was perhaps not the best foot to get off on. But if it did, we can forgive them because they were idealists and they were thinking big. So they had planned to build um, a nursery school, a park, a gas station, a building for a beauty parlor, a little medical office, and then the, the big clubhouse for communal kitchen. Uh, they wanted an amphitheater and, of course, a swimming pool and um, a plant nursery as well. So they had, they had really figured out how they could be almost self-contained within this little community. It was a very radical idea, and no wonder the, the Republican uh, Bel Air was, was up in arms about their, uh, this sort of commie pinko group settling into their neighborhood. Up in arms. Yes, they were. And it wouldn't be long before they'd make their displeasure felt in the person of Mrs. Henry Fonda. Well, Herman Schott, who was a very wealthy pharmacist, uh, believed so much in this cooperative spirit and was so excited about this community that he bought uh, what was actually the model home. Um, it's, it's on Hanley, very uh, simple um, but elegant structure, a model of 702. 
He had lived across the street from the Fondas. He, uh, he had mentioned to Mrs. Fonda uh, his enthusiasm for the community and what it was involved with. And Mrs. Fonda uh, was very upset that this group of radicals was moving into the area. So she, she did what she could to sort of stop the purchase. She uh, contacted the realtor and tried to stop the sale. And they almost did. They're, I guess they were behind in their payment, but they managed to make the payment. Uh, but she did have the realtor put conditions on the sale that they would not allow uh, Chinese or African Americans in, I guess they called them black then, um, to, uh, to reside in the community. And that really caused an upheaval within the members. A lot of the membership dropped out because uh, uh, they really believed the community should be open to everybody. A lot of the other members tried to convince the people leaving that the Supreme, it was going to be considered uh, at the Supreme Court shortly and that they were very confident that it would be overturned, as it was. But um, they, a lot of people left because of that restriction. A lot of people rejoined. Uh, once it was overturned, but uh, we, they did lose quite a few members. The Supreme Court did strike down racially restrictive housing covenants in Shelley versus Kramer in 1948. Thurgood Marshall was one of the lawyers who argued that case and won it. There'd be another victory for MHA along the way. A group of shareholders would travel to Washington and successfully lobby the Federal Housing Administration to underwrite construction loans, despite its strong distaste for modernist architecture. Well, I can only imagine that they felt that maybe they wouldn't be substantial, that, you know, they were backing these loans, so they, they wanted to make sure that their investment was secure. Uh, they probably didn't understand it. I mean, they were back east. They didn't, they didn't know that this flimsy sort of uh, post and beam architecture would actually hold up fairly well in California. I hope the association enjoyed that success. I really do. Because... Getting the feds on board was MHA's last unalloyed victory. Before construction even began, cracks began to show in the project's progressive facade. A Japanese-American couple, the Nasakis, were asked by the association to withdraw as shareholders in that period before covenants were struck down, and they did. Not a proud moment for a group founded in part on racial inclusiveness. Practical, maybe, but not proud. And construction, well, that didn't go the way anybody had thought. Nobody seems to have foreseen that the hilly plot MHA had bought and so lovingly planned was a beast to build on. It was a massive engineering challenge. The uh, uh, cost of construction uh, became considerably more basically because they had chosen hillside property versus a flat, flat acreage and uh, the infrastructure alone cost way more than they had estimated. Um, I believe they moved 250,000 cubic yards of earth for the project, which was not uh, surpassed until they built the 405 freeway. A. Quincy Jones, meanwhile, had given the builders unusually meticulous specifications to build to. It drove them nuts. The contractors just did not, um, had no idea that it would be so hard to build these. And in the end, two contractors went bankrupt. The first one actually put in, I believe it was 3,000 of his own money into each house because he believed in, he believed in this uh, development. 
And of course that was not sustainable, so after 30 houses he went bankrupt. And then the second uh, contractor had contracted for 15 of the houses. He went bankrupt after I believe six of them. So then the, the community members were left on their own. They had their plans, but they had to find their own contractors, uh, which a lot of them did. Not a lot, but uh, some did. And then others had their lot, so they chose to go with other architects. Maybe they were more reasonable. Um, but within our community, we have some star architects, the Neutra houses, the Craig Elwood houses. Uh, so some chose to actually spend a little bit more money and, and get another architect. By the time the third group of 30 houses was slated for construction, costs were out of control putting a home in Crestwood Hills out of reach for many of the middle-income homeowners the place had been conceived for. Squabbling broke out, and a group of dissident shareholders withdrew, eventually suing MHA to recover the cost of their shares. By the beginning of the 1950s, the experiment was pretty much over. MHA disbanded, and with it went the strong guiding vision for a cohesive, master-planned community. As Corey puts it in her 2015 book, Crestwood Hills, The Chronicle of a Modern Utopia, Crestwood Hills suddenly became just another homeowners association. On the original 350 lots, only 80 houses were ever built to the MHA plants. Flash forward now to 1994. Corey Buckner and her late husband, the architect Nick Roberts, get burned out of their Malibu home in a brush fire. They take the insurance settlement and move to Crestwood Hills, where Corey had previously worked on a couple of home projects. They like the idea of a modernist community, or what remained of one. What they find when they get there, though, takes them by surprise. When we moved into the neighborhood, uh, we were rather shocked at how quickly these houses were being demolished or remodeled beyond, beyond recognition. So uh, Nick and I invited all of the original homeowners, uh, or I should say all, we invited all of the people who owned houses of the original MHA design, and we had a meeting with the um, city planning department, invited somebody who was a specialist on HPOZs, which is the Historical Preservation Overlay Zones, and our idea was to see if we could get an, an overlay zone for our whole community. You need two-thirds of the community to do that, and after that first meeting, we realized we couldn't even get two-thirds of the original owners to agree on anything. Nobody was interested in preserving their houses. I wouldn't say nobody. There were very few out of maybe the 15 to 18 people that showed up. Only a couple people were interested in saving their houses. And that was shocking. It was shocking to us. And I, uh, I, well, we both decided, but I was the one who did the footwork in, in carrying in five of the original houses to the Cultural Heritage Commission. And we did whatever we could. And I know the council office worked behind the scenes as well, because they, they did some sort of magic. We got four out of the five declared. And then every two years, I would go in with another five. And um, finally, people are going in themselves. So we have, I believe we have 19 now declared. And that's how Corey became an historic preservationist. The history of her community has been her passion. She lives it. And in a very real sense, she lives in it. Yeah, the, the site office, uh, what, what it's referred to as the MHA site office, was just that. It was where the architect's employees worked while the project was uh, uh, being considered. It was uh, built as one large space. 
Um, I think that the bathroom was downstairs where the laundry room is currently uh, because there are no walls in, in, within this structure. So it was used for uh, Jim Charlton and Wayne Williams, uh, employees of uh, A. Quincy Jones, um, and then there were a few other employees that, that would work here. The architects that were part of this community, Whitney Smith and, and the structural engineer Edgardo Contini, all, all of them had their own larger offices somewhere else. But this was where the, the employees worked and also where the people came to view the plans. They could make their selections here as well. And in 1952, they, when the community had pretty much fallen apart um, financially, they uh, sold the house, sold the uh, building to a private party and turned it into a house, uh, very similar to a Model 111. The house sits up on a little rise above the community center. It's made of wood and articulated concrete block and a ribbon of windows. You can stand on the street 30 or 40 yards away and have to squint hard to find it, nestled snugly into the hillside. It's cool and angular and absolutely beautiful. I ask her if it's an easy house to live in. It, it's extraordinary to live in this house. I gave you a tour of the, the bedroom. You see that you get morning sun. And you get the sun all day long. And it's just a, a magically sighted house uh, because actually the entire long front gets the morning sun. So it's just a joy to wake up um, to, to this extraordinary architecture every morning. And then during the day, the sun comes around the house, so you, you sort of, you're very aware of, of uh, nature and, and the climate and seasons, and it's, it's extraordinary. Very good things in a California house. You don't have to admire modern architecture, I don't think, to be moved by the story of Crestwood Hills and of that moment in time when people touched by art and science and high ideals emerged from war and looked ahead with optimism, with a conviction that good ideas have their own unstoppable momentum and the future can be made for everybody. The founders of Crestwood Hills may have overshot the limits of their ability to deliver that future. That doesn't mean they were wrong to try. But I will confess to wondering, do places like Crestwood Hills inevitably become just neighborhoods? Or is there a sense in which some of their animating spirit continues to reside in their hearts and bones? I, I would say it does survive. Um, especially now, after the book has come out, and there's, there's a lot more awareness of how special this community was. Um, I think the people that have bought into this community, certainly even before the book was, was published, but they had a sense of, of a community spirit here. And uh, there have been, for years, picnics down at the park. Um, and when we moved in, there, that was 95, uh, 94 actually, there was not that much community spirit. It sort of webbed, or ebbed, I should say. The community spirit had sort of ebbed uh, away uh, with the aging of the population. Um, most people moving into Crestwood Hills stay here until they're, they're carted away. Um, so as the people were getting older, there was less of the sort of communal uh, activity. 
But just as we moved in, a lot of families started to move in, and then we saw the sort of uh, recreation of that spirit. And there was a lot of activities down at the park, classes, music in the park in the summers, and it was quite extraordinary. A little bit, we've, we've sort of, the kids have sort of grown up uh, out of that generation, but um, it, it, we're a little bit less of, of a community right at the moment, but I, I'm convinced that we'll get that spirit back again. One more thing. Remember how the FHA didn't want to back construction loans for modernist houses because it was afraid they were flimsy? Well, give A. Quincy Jones, who died in 1979, a decade and a half before the Northridge earthquake, the last word on that. And the last laugh. Yeah, the... uh, uh... As far as I know, there was only one cracked glass at somebody's house. It was a Model 702. That was the only damage that was suffered in our community after that earthquake, which was quite extraordinary. So these whole, the houses just move with the with an earthquake. They, they're not like masonry structures, which are so rigid that they will crack. But that doesn't happen here. They sort of blow with the wind. <laughs> <laughs>